Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. This morning we're going to take a look at the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel chapter 1 and we will begin our reading in verse 1. Daniel chapter 1 and we'll begin reading in verse 1. I've never preached these verses and I will say that there is a chance we might spend some time in the book of Daniel. I'm just not sure uh, but uh, I would say probably there's a real good chance next week we will be back in the book of Daniel. But we want to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, young people, youths, he said, I want, in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving the king's court and he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans and Babylonians are basically synonyms, but the Chaldeans were somewhat of a subset of Babylonians who lived in the southern part of Babylon uh, in what would be modern-day Iraq. The king appointed for them a daily ration, from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. This is a story of a 15-year-old boy. He is somewhere around that age. We're guessing a little, but we think that we are fairly close. It is a story of a young 15-year-old boy who had his faith and trust in God, who was snatched up, carried 900 miles away almost instantly, and thrust into a culture like he had never experienced in his life. He, along with some of his friends. Now, I want to just say, first of all, 
that the book of Ruth and the book of Daniel have some similarities. The book of Ruth occurs during the time of the judges, and it says during the time of the judges, there was no king. Moses had died. Joshua had died. They were in that kind of a uh, intermediate period where they really had no leadership. And so during that time, it says men did that which was right in their own eyes. Whatever they decided was right or they felt to be what they should do, that's just what they did, much like in our world today. But during that time, we have the book of Ruth that just leaps off the page. And it's such a beautiful story about the grace of God and about love and about how God brought together Ruth and Boaz and how you have a Moabite woman and then you have Boaz who is the son uh, of a harlot uh, named Rahab. And they come together and they are married and, 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 and God Throughout the end of that, of course, they have a son named Obed who has a son named Jesse who has a son named David. And, of course, you know how the story goes. It is a beautiful ray of light in a time of darkness. Daniel is much the same way. Now, I will tell you, there's not a lot of light in today's passage. But if you look at the whole book of Daniel, you are going to see how that in times of unspeakable distress, God was able to use Daniel and his friends in an incredible way. As a matter of fact, when you first start reading Daniel, the first three, four chapters, you just see these rulers like Nebuchadnezzar and later his son Belshazzar. They just run everybody's life, do ever what they, whatever they want to do. They have no regard for Daniel's God or any of that. But there's a really cool verse. I just don't know a better word than cool. But in, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, it says, And Daniel serves Darius. Now, that's odd because Darius is not a Babylonian. Darius is actually a Persian. And what that tells us is we already know. That no matter how mighty, how wicked, how powerful, how vicious, how scary Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians may look, we know that their days are numbered because just as they overthrew the Assyrians, the Persians will overthrow them, the Greeks will overthrow the Persians, and later the Romans will overthrow the Greeks. So understand, just because you have someone who looks mighty and indestructible, be careful in your thinking because I can tell you, God is still on the throne. So we have to understand that. Now, just a little bit of history. We know there were 12 tribes of Israel. We know that those 12 tribes divided themselves into two different kingdoms. Was it God's will? But it's what happened. And the ten tribes in the north, they're called Israel usually, or the northern kingdom. And then the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south are called the southern kingdom. Usually they are referred to as simply Judah. The ten tribes in the north have already gone into captivity. They are no more. 
The Assyrians overtook them, carried many of them away, and many who were left behind have married into the people that were left there and around that area of Samaria, and thus we now have the Samaritans, and and so they just dissipated into society. But for 136 more years, the two tribes in the south would hang on. But later the Babylonians would overthrow the Assyrians, and the Babylonians would come for the remaining two tribes. About 586 years B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes after fighting against them for some 20 years. It took him a while, but he finally besieged the city, and he burned it to the ground. He went into the temple, and he burned it to the ground as well. But let me just read you a verse to whet your appetite. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 2 through 3, It says, it seems good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Now, when you hear that, you're like, man... At first, you can't help but think, wow, what a word, Daniel. You know, after all you went through for you to be able to make such a declaration of your faith in God, man, it's just awesome. But let me tell you, Daniel didn't say those words. Those words came from Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that tells me something has happened in Babylon. These young men that were carried away have had an influence on an entire society. And I'm, I, I'm not telling you that when you get to heaven, Nebuchadnezzar will be there, but I'm, I'm just telling you, uh, you, it is amazing what God can do with just a few young men that are willing to fully dedicate themselves to Him. As a matter of fact, I believe it was D.L. Moody who said one time, that at his uh, early in his ministry, he said, it's yet to be seen what God can do with a man of God that will totally commit himself to him. And when he ended his ministry, he says, I still say, it is yet to be seen what God can do with a man that will totally commit himself to the Lord. So I want to share with you today, and a lot of this will be the darker part of the story, but We have to be willing to look at that. A message entitled, When Pagans Rule. And I'm not talking about the Babylonians. Because we know they're pagans. And we know for a short time they are going to rule over the people of God. But that's not their problem. The problem is they already have pagans. They already have people ruling them like Jehoiakim who are already turning against God. Who never honored God. God and who are going to be judged by Him. What is it like when you have leaders that care nothing about the Lord? I don't expect, I know when we vote in a president and Congress and all of that, I understand we're not hiring pastors. I I got all of that. 
But there's a lot of difference in just being a, a politician who understands and honors God and prays to Him for direction and being the kind of leaders in many of our countries, and I would have to say especially in America, that cares so little about anything that God has got to say. It's a travesty, and we are seeing it. So there are four things that I I just want to share with you this morning that happens when pagans rule. First of all, incompetent direction. The leadership was incompetent. In the third year, it says, verse 1, of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jehoiakim was a wicked, sorry, no-account king. As a matter of fact, not all of the kings in the southern kingdom were bad. If you remember, though, from our studies here before, all of the kings in the northern kingdom were bad. They never had, those ten tribes never had one single leader that cared about God. That is really incredible. But in the southern kingdom, they had about eight kings. They had, excuse me, Asa and Jehoshaphat. Uh, they had uh, Hezekiah. Uh, they, they were others. Then Josiah, uh, after Manasseh, who was wicked. But then Josiah came to the throne. He was the last good king that they would have. Because once he got himself caught up in a battle, he had no business being a part of to start with. And he dies. Then his son Joahash becomes the king, and after him, one worse than him, Jehoiakim. And after Jehoiakim, we have Jehoiakim. And then after Jehoiakim, we have Zedekiah. And I can tell you, all four of those last kings were worthless. They were worthless. So what was wrong with their leadership? Two things. One... Weakness. Weakness. Jehoiakim, as a matter of fact, for the last three years of his reign, he ruled at the permission or at the behest of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a vassal king. In other words, he was a ruler, but he ruled with the permission of a higher power. So here you have the king of Jerusalem, the king of Judah rather, and he is being influenced by outside governments. Could you imagine living in a world like that? But he is being told what to do. He is being told what he can do and what he can't do, and he has been led all the way. He is a weak leader. He is afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. He knows they're a powerful nation. So instead of putting his faith and trust in the power of God, he decides to try to submit to a pagan named Nebuchadnezzar. Man, I want to tell you, that never works. Matter of fact, one of the things that I've said before, and it's not an original with me, but when it comes to the wicked, appeasement only breeds contempt. You never are going to reach them by trying to negotiate. And I understand, I, I got it. My personality is 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 not negotiating. I see things 
uh, very black and white for the most part, and sometimes uh, to a fault. I understand that. But I can tell you what we have going on in our world right now, the wars that we are seeing that, that are just coming together, and every day the rumbling gets louder and louder. I can promise you that appeasing the wicked is not going to save anybody. And we may not like it. We may not want it to happen, but I can tell you, I shared this illustration with you before, but World War ended with us, armistice agreement that was signed, and the result of that was World War II. And until we went to Tokyo, and until we went to Berlin, and ended the enemy's ability to make war, war continued on. Now, I'm not running for president. And I don't claim to even know how to do the job. But I will tell you this, our leadership, man, and here lately, just pick a side. I'm telling you, it's like the whole place stinks to high heaven. We can't seem to get out of our own way. But this is what happens when you have people ruling and leading you that care nothing about God. You have weakness, incompetent direction. Secondly, you have wickedness. You have wickedness. In Second Kings chapter 23, verse 37, it says, Jehoiakim did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now, he was the son of Josiah, and Josiah was a good king. But Later on, when Jehoiakim, at the age of 25, came to the throne, he reigned for 11 years. And let me just tell you what Jeremiah said about him. Jeremiah was one of the main preachers during that time, a prophet, and this is what he said. Jeremiah 22:17. but your eyes and your heart, yeah, you had a great granddaddy. Your, your, Josiah was, was an awesome, awesome ruler, but your eyes and your heart and intent upon our intent upon your own dishonest gain, and on shedding innocent blood, and on practicing oppression and extortion. In verse 18, he says, and when you die, no one's going to weep. As a matter of fact, in verse 19, he says, he will be buried. Jehoiakim, when you die, you will be buried with a donkey's burial. That's even more emphatic in the King James. Dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And one you'd have thought that man with a guy with his, with as much power on him and the Spirit of God on him like Jeremiah, who had already proven that the Lord was speaking through him, you'd have thought, well, Jehoiakim will at least humble himself now. It says that, no, Jehoiakim did what people do nowadays. He took the scroll on which Jeremiah had written these things, and he cut it up in pieces, and then he burned it to ashes. And later on, another prophet would confront Jehoiakim, but it says that he hunted him down and he had his men find him and they killed that prophet. So just like today, it's not a new idea. When the preachers are preaching things we don't want to hear and don't support our ideas, we either abandon them or we attack them. You can attack the messenger all you want to. It is as dumb as beating up the mailman or you're like me, I got a female man. But it is as dumb as 
beating up the mailman for delivering bills that you owe. I'm just a mailman. I, I just deliver the mail. I don't write it. I'm just telling you what, what God has to say. And that's what I hope preachers will do. And even if it costs them their jobs, their health, if it costs them their ministries, their lives, I hope that men of God during this time will stand up and preach the truth because we so desperately need it. Incompetent direction can tell you we got plenty of that. Secondly, incredible danger. It says in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He burned it to the ground. I mean, this was something that could just never happen. Matter of fact, Jerusalem is Hebrew for city of peace. And they had such massive walls and it was so well fortified. There was just no way in the world anyone was ever going to breach its walls or conquer its people. It even had an inside water source that where it could last forever. But I want to tell you something. When you are a child of God and you belong to the Lord and you begin to serve other gods and you don't give God the rightful place in your life, I don't care how much physical strength and stamina you may have, you are bound to destruction when you turn your back on God. You know, we look at our country today and it's almost like it could just never happen here there's just no way you know I remember people talking about how powerful Russia is man Russia has its hands full just trying to conquer Ukraine and they're right next door what on earth would they do to a nation like the United States of America and even China they have powerful weapons and a lot of people but a lot of their stuff is outdated compared to what we have in America but the other problem we have in America that's, that overtakes all of that, that overshadows all of that, is we have been blessed by God and we have shaken our fist in His face. God's judgment will either come on us one day or He owes a lot of countries a big apology. No one was safe anymore in Jerusalem. There was no peace. Matter of fact, one writer said God would rather, and this is the point that God made, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land and disgracing his name. You know, I thought about with our young men going to the Mediterranean and the Gulf and all of that. I can remember when we were in the Iraqi war. Boy, it was tough. And I remember people talking about our young men who were there in harm's way. And man, you just, you just can't have more respect for our soldiers than, than I do. I, I, man, my heart goes out to them. We owe them so, so very much. I have uncles on both sides of my family. I think I had one uncle out of all of them that did not serve in the military. And some of them did incredible things. Matter of fact, I have one uncle that has two graves. Uh, he was flying uh, on a mission in somewhere near China, and 
his plane was shot down and there were no survivors and all the, the only way they even knew who had died because it was there, the bodies were, could, they couldn't recognize them. There was a piece of the plane that had the names written on it. And so they just dug graves for all of them and threw in the graves whatever they could. Problem was, that night before that plane left the tarmac, my uncle was headed toward it as he did so many times. His commander came up behind him and said, Hey, Snellgrove, they... They were like that in the Air Force. He said, I got a young man that needs some flying time. He says, you take tonight off. First time he had ever done it. And it was the first time that plane never came home. So he's buried in Anderson, South Carolina. And as far as we know, he still has a grave in China somewhere. I can tell you, we worry about our young men. But let me tell you something that just blows my mind. Do you know during the Iraqi war, if you were a young man fighting for the United States in the Iraq war, you had a better chance of staying alive than if you were a young man of the same age who lived in Detroit. They were safer They were safer in the military, probably had less guns. But they were safer in the military than they were in cities like Detroit and Chicago. They died at a a less rate because it was so dangerous. And you look at our nation today, it is so amazing to me how that we have so much crime. We've got, you know, we should have the best police forces in the world, and I have all the regard for them as well. But we've got it all mixed up. We've made victims out of people who are committing the crime, and, and, and we've got this foolish humanistic idea that there is no such thing as evil, that everybody's good. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a lady speaking before Congress recently, and she talked about uh, victims of criminal of the criminal justice system or participants in the participants in the criminal justice system and she was talking about both the criminal and the victim now they just call them participants in the criminal justice system it's incredible i have to tell you there's a lot of danger incredible danger incompetent direction Number three, inconceivable depravity. Inconceivable depravity. Verse two, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, don't read that too quickly, and I may just have. This means that Nebuchadnezzar was able to walk right in the front door of the temple. Now, everybody was, I know had to be waiting on God to strike him dead, but God never put a hand on him. As a matter of fact, it says God gave him not only Jehoiakim, but God gave him the vessels as well. Because at one time, if you had gone past that curtain, and that's all they needed, the curtain, that the veil that was between the, the main part of the temple and, and, and the part of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the Holy of Holies, all they needed was a curtain. They didn't need iron bars because what kept people out was fear. 
Because if you went back there and you weren't the high priest at the right time of year, God would strike you dead, and he already had several times. But here comes a heathen named Nebuchadnezzar. He walks right through the front door. He gathers up all the stuff, the treasures, the vessels, the pots, the cups, all of that holy stuff, the gold. He carries it all, and as far as we know, the Ark of the Covenant as well, we never see it again. He carries it away and burns the temple to the ground. That's called having a place to worship and know God. Know God. The presence of God had left that place, and it says he took them down to Shinar. That was in the southern part of Babylon. And if you remember, that's where the Tower of Babel was. you got, got to remember that the, the Babylonians had been around a long time. The Babylonians we're talking about here near the end of the Old Testament is called Neo-Babylon, but it was the same pagan people that tried to build a tower to God. They had their own ideas about how to reach heaven. They took it into their own hands. They ignored God. And, of course, you remember what God did to them. That's way back in the book of Genesis. These are the same people. And they take the very vessels out of the temple of God to this pagan ziggurat, this tower they had built. They take God's holy vessels there. They had reduced God to some kind of pagan ritual. Man, One of the things that happens when pagans rule, that which is holy becomes common. The opposite of holy is not just unholy. The opposite of holy is common. When you treat something as if it's no different than a whole lot of other things. The word holy, hagias, In the Greek, Kadesh in the Hebrew, it is a word that we have a hard time defining because it means otherness. It means that there is nothing else like it. So it's not that you treat some things holy and some things sinful. Something that is either holy or either it's something that you treat as very, very common. So when my service to God becomes common like everything else in my life, when I don't take what I give to be any more serious in paying my bills or my attendance at at the house of God or my prayer life or, or my study life, when I treat that like I do everything else in life, get to it whenever I get time, pay it whenever I can afford it, if I treat it as common, then I have treated it as if it is unholy and it is not worthy. It is not worthy to give to God. As a matter of fact, you know the old saying, what parents do in a limited fashion, children do in excess sometimes. Later on, Belshazzar, who was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, will take these very vessels And he will gather them together and he will throw a party with a bunch of harlots and they have this orgy time together. This is in Daniel chapter 5. And Belshazzar is having a party and and, and he's enjoying all of these things and he's making fun of this, this God of these Jews that was supposed to stop his daddy but couldn't and we're just all powerful and we're almighty and nobody's ever going to lay a hand on us and he just got into a drunken 
stupor. And matter of fact, uh, I guess he thought it was the alcohol, but all of a sudden he sees a hand on the wall and it's writing him a little note. <laughs> and the little note was from God. Many, many, tickle, far, sickle. Wrote it in his language, but he couldn't understand it. So he sent for Daniel. Daniel said, I can tell you what it says. The meaning of the message is you have been found wanting, Mr. Belshazzar. God has weighed you. He has put you on the scales, and you have not measured up. And he is going to bring his judgment on you tonight. Now, this is interesting. While they're partying, they hadn't noticed that the river Euphrates that ran right through the middle of the city of Babylon, okay, they hadn't noticed that the water level seems to be dropping. It probably had been going on for weeks or maybe months. The reason the water level was dropping ever so slowly was way upstream in the Euphrates, the Persians were digging gullies and trenches so some of the water could go out into the fields and lower the level of the mighty Euphrates River. And that very night, as a matter of fact, just, you know, I'm a stickler for detail, October 13th, 539 B.C. We know that because of the Babylonian calendar. On our calendars, October the 13th, and I'm sorry I let it get by us without us celebrating. But that very night, when the water got low enough, the Persians didn't try to go over the wall. They eased under the wall. And before Belshazzar could even make a move, they had conquered him, and they overthrew him. And the kingdom of this great Nebuchadnezzar and all his mighty army and his son Belshazzar and the Babylonian Empire is right where it is today, which is a bunch of ruins in Iraq. It's amazing when God decides that, hey, you might be big in man's eyes, but when you face God, I don't care who you are, he always wins. Last of all, incompetent direction, incredible danger, inconceivable depravity. Number four, intentional deception. They did three things. He says, I want you to bring, he told Ashpenaz, his servant, he said, I want you to bring me the brightest and, and the best. I want you to bring me the smartest kids they've got. Maybe you're here and you're a parent and you're like, whew, mine would have escaped that. Hope not. Bring the brightest and the best. But we'll have to do some things with them first because they are indoctrinated into their own thinking and they're very much a part of their own culture. And so they said we got to do three things. Number one is relocation. Had to relocate them. So they carried them away some 900 miles or so into a culture like they had never seen before. Sometimes it almost feels like I've been kidnapped. When I 
look around me and I see the things that are going on nowadays, I'm blown away. I'm like, I did not grow up in this world. I was born in 1960, yeah, and I don't remember much about the Beatles or the Flower Children or whatever, but in the 70s, man, I was uh, hitting my stride, and yeah, we had lots of things that went on, but I can tell you, there are things that go on in our supposedly civilized culture nowadays that just absolutely blows my mind. And what kills me is my grandchildren are growing up in this culture It is like they have been relocated to a very, very strange world. A world where we no longer understand gender. There is no longer a a divine design to marriage. Right and wrong are subjective. Truth has almost been forgotten about. It is so amazing to me. It is like we live on another planet. And the aliens look really weird, especially those who look like me before they put the dress on. Wow, I'd rather take the kind with the light bulb-shaped heads myself. They're less scary. But sometimes I almost feel like we've been kidnapped and carried away. And you know what's so sad about this? Many of them were. Not every one. But he took thousands, thousands back to Babylon. Several different deportations over a period of years. And then later on when his kingdom falls and the Persians come to power, Cyrus, King Cyrus of the Persians, signs the edict edict of Cyrus that allowed all of the Jews, they were called that by then, all of the Jews to go back to their homeland if they wanted to. And would you believe it that most of them, the vast majority of them, never went back? Never went back. Man, they in a new town. Hey, you go back if you want to. Work's good here. Wages here are great. No more of that old-fashioned thinking. I wish we had a hundred youth sitting here this morning. I just love to tell them this. Maybe they're feeling like, man, I don't, I'm tired of that old fashioned thinking, those old ways. Uh, they, they had multiple ways in Babylon of understanding God. That would be so popular nowadays. Oh, it's not just this one God. Back home, we had like one God. Here in Babylon, we got a moon God, and we got a sun God, and we got a rain God, and we got a fertility God. And any culture that has multiple gods, you know, if you have a lot of gods, that means you have no God. Because that means you're running things. You're throwing virgins in volcanoes trying to manipulate whether or not it rains. You are the one that's making all of this happen. You have no God. Oh, nowadays. Man, I don't know how many people in this world are waiting on your pastor to finally get his mind broadened enough to realize there are a lot of ways of understanding God. And just because Jesus is the only way for me doesn't mean Jesus is the only way for everybody. Well, I didn't say that. So give me a break at a syllable. I didn't say it. 
Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. I didn't write that. I have to preach it. They had an updated moral code. Oh, there were a lot of things that were acceptable in Babylon that you couldn't do back home in Judah. And also, they had the scientific age going on, too. They really had some killer bright minds during that time. So the first thing they wanted to do was relocate them. That's what they like to do nowadays to our best and brightest young people. They like to take them. When our kids go off to college, do you realize the vast majority of them in their freshman year forsake their faith? They're not Christian anymore. They don't go to church anymore. It doesn't mean anything to them anymore. They have been relocated. Secondly, re-education is another way the Babylonians tried to reach these kids. Verse 4, ordered them, him to teach them the literature. Ashpenaz, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And, appoint, and he appointed that they should be taught for three years. So they got a three-year free college degree. And it's coming their way. The Chaldeans are going to teach them their ways. By the way, the Chaldeans, the southern Babylonians, they were really big into magic and lore and all kinds of foolishness like that. Enchanters and sorcerers and magicians and Chaldeans sometimes in the Bible are all bunched together. They were so into it, it became part of of their identity. And by the way, that's where astrology came from. A thousand years ago in Babylon is where, or 1000 BC, 3000 years ago is when astrology was developed. You know, one of the things that amuses me I hear Christians a lot of times use language. I'm like, do you know where that came from? When you talk about karma, you know where that came from? That came from Hinduism. That's not like, well, everybody gets, you know, even in the end somehow or another. No, you're talking about a spiritual discipline of Hinduism. And when people talk about the zodiac, oh, what sign are you? That is so ridiculous. It is so pagan. And it came from Babylon so many years ago. And this is what's really cool about it. If you're like me and you're a big enough nerd to go back and read all the history behind it, what you find out is this. And you can look it up. I hope you will. But the Babylonians discovered that there were 13 constellations through which the sun shone at different times of the year. But they only had 12 months. So... When no one was looking, they took one of the zodiacal signs and discarded it. And because the sun doesn't shine through these constellations at the same rate every time, actually no one in the world has a clue what their zodiacal sign would be anyway. And here you are scouring the farmerssingles.com looking for a Sagittarius. Oh, you're a Leo. We won't work. And these come from people who think I'm stupid because I believe in God. Wow. How ridiculous can you be? 
Witchcraft was a part of their trade. In the Bible, the Greek word for witchcraft is pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it. And pharmakia was a word that meant that you were attempting to alter reality yourself. You're using something other than the power of God to manipulate truth. You know, magicians, they talk about, I'm going to make this woman disappear. They don't ever make that woman disappear. They make you think they made that woman disappear. They do not have the power to make that woman disappear. You ever notice when they catch the bullet in their teeth, they never let anybody bring their own gun? Here's one. Bang. It's ridiculous. And God says, I hate witchcraft. I hate witchcraft. He says it's like the sin of rebellion because I am the one who controls nature. And when you begin to think with sleight of hand that you can manipulate what I have made, he says, I hate that. I hate that sin. They also wanted to teach him not only the language but the literature as well. I'm going to close here in a moment, but I just think this is something else. When you teach people the language and the literature, that's a great way to reach them. Because words in one culture might mean something different in another culture. And I can tell you, to learn the language, the Akkadian language that the Babylonians spoke, man alive, it, it opened up a whole nother world to these people from Judah. Just like in our world today, they had words that didn't mean the same thing that they meant in Hebrew. I'll just give you a couple of examples. I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm pronouncing them correctly or not, but I know that the word barf, the word barf in Farsi means snow. You know, you just probably need to know that before you start speaking very much Farsi. The word brat, maybe pronouncing it wrong, but in Russia, in Russian, or Ruski, it means brother. Here's my little brat. That could get confusing. I'll give you one more that I experienced personally myself when I was in Western Africa preaching. They warned us says, do not go there and preach to them about the Great Commission because they spoke French where I was and they had the Grand Commission, the Great Commission, and the Small Commission, the Petite Commission. And the Grand Commission and the Petite Commission was about going to the bathroom. So glad I learned that. My first sermon, what if I'd have stood up and said, hey, I'm here to teach you about the Grand Commission. They would have gone, man, you came a long ways to teach us something we already know all about. So you teach people the new words of the new culture. Just a few new words in our new culture. The word love now means that I never do anything that will offend you. It doesn't mean that I care enough about you to tell you the truth. If you love me, you won't offend me. You won't tell me that I've chosen a lifestyle, Pastor Mike, that is sinful and ungodly. And it's something from which God could rescue me. He could deliver me from that. No, you will accept the choice that I've made. That's the new meaning of the word love in our new Babylon here. The word God... 
It's just any personal higher power. God might be one thing to you, and it might be, mean something totally different to somebody else. It's totally subjective. Truth has been reduced. Truth in this new Babylonian culture that we have around us, truth has been reduced to belief. If you believe it, then, well, good for you. And sin... Sin is just one of those disastrous things that befalls us sometimes, but there's really nobody to blame. Things like CRT, critical race theory, and things like that tell us that all of that is because of the culture in which we were raised or the, per, or the, the people group, the society, the, the different things that happen to us within our culture. It's, their, it's that fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's something that somebody did to us. It is not a willful decision to rebel against God. I can tell you, friend, they want to teach us a new language. Re-educate, relocate, last of all. They do it by reorientation. It says, And the commander of the officials, verse 7, assign new names to them. Now, what are these new names? First of all, let me tell you, the names would tie them back to their family. This is breaking their ties to their family. In this day, a name meant something. It was given to you for a reason. It identified you with the people of God. They said, let's get rid of that. So they give them a reorientation. They tell them, hey, forget about where you're from and what you've learned. The word Daniel means God is my judge. They said, no, we're going to give you a name, Belteshazzar, which means that Baal protects my life. That's your new name. It could be on your driver's license. Hananiah, that was a word, a name that meant to be gracious. They said, no, nope, we're going to call you Shadrach, which came from Aku, which was the moon god for the Babylonians. Mishael is a word that means who is like God. They said, we're going to call you Meshach. You're a guest of the king. And Azariah, your name means Yahweh has helped. Now nah, we're going to call you servant of Nego. We're going to take away everything that you've learned from your past. We're going to uproot you, take you from all those ties you've had before. And we're going to put you in a different world. I'm going to close today. I hope we get to cover more of this. You're going to be blown away at how dark it is in these first seven verses and how four young men were able to actually transform an environment. It's incredible what they were able to do. God used them in a mighty way. And I can tell you, I, I, I would wish every one of our youth were here today. In November, as a matter of fact, some of you already know this, I'm going to spend that whole month on Wednesday nights with the youth, and I'm going to do a study with our youth on a Christian worldview. What is a Christian 
worldview? How do you see the world through the biblical way of looking at it? The biblical design that God has given us for the world. What is a biblical view of the world? And I hope you'll come. I hope you'll bring your friends. I especially hope you bring the friends that think I'm crazy because I can't wait to meet them. I'll let them ask me anything they want to ask. I'm going to open the floor. They can ask anything. I don't care what they ask. Where did God come from? We'll start with that one. I don't care. I want you to come. And parents, I hope you will encourage your kids to come. I, I, I don't know how things are at your house, so I'll say encourage. My dad never encouraged me to do anything. He said, you just do it. But I wish they'd come. It is so vital. Man, our young people go off to college. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how many of them forsake the faith. They meet some professor who really looks smart, and, and, and they just are carried away by the things that he has to say. And they remember old mom and dad back home that couldn't get the VCR to quit flashing 12 o'clock. And I'm old, I know. So they just think, man, I'm so glad. I I respect all that back home, but I tell you, I'm in a new world now. And this, I'm understanding now the origin of humanity and all of that. I I just got a fresh, broader way of looking at everything. Man, I hope and pray that you will come. And let's talk about what the Bible says about how we are to view the world. When they tell you there is no absolute truth, there's no such thing as absolute truth, I want to teach you how to ask them, well, is what you just said absolute truth? When they tell us that you can't know anything outside of your five senses, you're seeing, you're smelling, you're tasting, you're touching, you're hearing, you can't know anything, you, unless you can experience it with one of your five senses, there's no way you can know that for sure. Ask them, did you come up with what you just said with one of your five senses? If so, which one? They are lying to you. They're inconsistent, and their teachings are full of self-refuting statements. And we're going to look at them. But church, I beg you, join me and let's pray for this country. I, I don't know... I'm telling you, honestly, I, I'm, I mean, God's got it all, so I'm good to go with it, whatever happens, really. I don't know how Israel's going to get out of this one without occupying Gaza, and our president's already told them, I hope you don't do that, but what are we going to do? They're just going to keep fighting? There'll be a new group move into Gaza, and they'll have to kill them in a few years. It's amazing. The son of Hamas was on the news this morning talking about, and, and his daddy is the one running the whole show. He defected years ago, spent time in prison, and is now a Christian in the United States of America. So don't ever quit praying for those people, okay? But he says the Hamas does not care one thing about Palestine or Palestinians. They want to do one thing and one thing only, and that is kill Jews. Here we are talking about peace treaties. 
I don't know what's going to happen. But if they do occupy Gaza, Iran's probably going to get involved and we're going to get involved. Welcome to World War III. Now would be a great time for us to get on our knees. So let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we come to you right now and I ask you, Lord, take what we've heard today and anoint it and empower it. God, it's just words. If, if, all, if all I do is just say it, God, if it comes from me or my studies or any of that, Lord, it's, it's, it's worthless. But Lord, if you anoint it, it touches hearts. If, if you pierce the minds and hearts of your people, God. It changes us and it transforms us. It quickens us, God. It warns us. Lord, we take it seriously when we know it's come from you. And I pray today, God, that you would awaken us. I pray, God, you would. I pray, Father, you will help us, Lord, as a church to realize and know, God, we can put our faith and our trust in you. There's another in the fire, and it's you. There's another holding back the sea, God, and it is you. But Lord, I pray we would not take your grace for granted. I pray you'd help us, God, to quit treating things that are supposed to be holy as common. God, we are vessels. And yet sometimes we take our vessels places they shouldn't go and do things that with our vessels they shouldn't do, God. Help us, Lord, before we judge ancient Babylon to look at our own hearts. I pray, God, you'll help us. I pray for peace in this world, Lord. I know it's not going to happen until you come and call us home, Lord, and this place is destroyed. But I pray, God, right now, I have nowhere else to turn but to you. But I pray, Lord, for your protection on innocent lives. And I pray, God, that the wicked would soon know that they have to face you. I just pray, Lord, that you would just help us to know as your people that you are still sovereign. You're still in charge. Nothing happened in Daniel 1 that you didn't cause and, and was not orchestrating God. And we know, Lord, nothing's going to happen today. Lord, without your permission and without you using it by your sovereign power to get glory and honor. So I pray you'd help us now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.